Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview inspiring, fascinating women who are navigating aging with class and sass. I'm your host, Nicole Christina. Hey everyone, I am so grateful for all of the downloads, and I'd love a rating on iTunes and a comment. And please subscribe. It helps the show's rating so other people can find it and learn how to age well. And if you are loving the podcast, why not check out the companion online course, Zestful Aging, Simple and Sustainable Habits for Health and Longevity. You can access it through my website, NicoleChristina.com forward slash Zestful Aging. It's based on the Harvard Study of Adult Development, and I'm really proud of how it's turned out. Well, I've got my coffee in my hand and my trusty dog Sparky beside me, so let's begin. Today we have a fellow presenter at the upcoming International Federation of Aging Conference in Toronto. Helen Codd is a professor at the University of Central Lancashire in the UK. Her Research is focused on human rights for prisoners and their families. She's also interested in gender and in international perspectives on criminal justice. Her work has been cited in argument by counsel before the Grand Chamber of the European Court of Human Rights, and she has contributed to a number of significant reports on prisoners' families. She's passionate about faith, justice, crime, good food, and travel. Hello, Helen. Hi. How are you? I'm really good. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. I'm excited to be talking to you today. Um, And I guess, you know, you've probably heard this question many times, but I am curious, how did you get interested in the judicial system and prisoners' rights? A really good question. I I haven't got an obvious answer to that. when I when I was young, when I was when I was a kid, when I was little, I always wanted to write. I always wanted to write novels. Um, but I'm the first time my family to go to university, and there was a certain amount of pressure in my family that I should do something at university that would get me a job, not just like because I wanted to study English. And I'd always been kind of interested in crime and justice and law. And looking back, a lot of the books I loved when I was a child had prisoners of theme. I loved there's a um, Inez the Railway Children is about uh, free chill and his father goes to jail for something he didn't mm. do and so on and so on and I, I wish there was an easy answer to that but I don't know what got me interested but I do know that I went off to study law at university in, in Aberystwyth in 1987 and, and in the UK law is an undergraduate subject so you can do an, a law degree mm-hmm. as your undergraduate which you can't in the US That's, yeah. and I went off to Aberystwyth to study law with a vague idea I was going to become a, a lawyer and I did a couple of students and placements in the holidays and things and vacations and realised I hated a lot of the, the paperwork in, in lawyers' offices and it was quite boring. And then in my second year, end of my first year, beginning of my second year, uh, I was kind of home for the, the holidays and my parents were pushing me to, I suppose, do some more work, think, you know, think about working for the next year and so on on academic things. And I picked up a book in the library called Criminal Women, which was written by a woman called Pat Carlin, who I now know is one of the most famous feminist criminologists in the world. And this was a sex, uh, six biographical 
accounts of women in prison. And from that moment, my life completely became obsessed with women in prison because I did a, a module, I did a course called Criminal Justice, and this is in 1988, and it was a whole kind of semester course called Criminal Justice. And I loved the module, but it had no women in it. All the way through, we talked about police, we talked about courts, we talked about prisons, there were no women. And so in my third year, I had to do a dissertation. And because of this, um, I, I kind of went to my tutor and said, look, I want to do something on women in prison. And he kind of looked at me and went, women, prison. Hmm. <laughs> it was really funny. And I remember, interesting yeah, and I kind of stood there going, yeah, about 5% of them are women, you know, in, in Britain. And he kind of went, oh. And he, he's a really, I mean, I'm still in touch with him. He's a lovely, lovely man. He's just about retiring as a professor. And I just remember standing in his office going, yeah, women in prison. He went, yeah, like, you know, obviously there are some, but he didn't actually know anything about it. And so I, I started working on this, like, 8,000-word dissertation. And I will never forget, I was standing in a university corridor one day, and he walked up to me, and he said, oh, how's the research going? And I thought, the what? And he was the first person to ever call what I did research. Uh-huh. And I thought, oh. So I wrote this thing anyway, and got my degree. And I was going to go off and, and be, still be a lawyer, but I... I I didn't have any money behind me. I didn't have the family connections. I didn't have any of that. And what happened then was that the university had a symposium. And that year's symposium was, I think it was about women and law. And I discovered that another famous feminist professor, um, a woman called Alison Morris, was, had been invited to speak at this. So I went up to the same tutor and I said, look, can I meet her? And he said, look, she's really busy. She's really famous. You, you know, don't you know you've got kind of got no chance and I kind of went well please mm. so basically he kind of said to me and I can remember it was a coffee break he said well stand there literally next to a table and I'll see what I can do so anyway next thing and I'm a third year student I've got no confidence whatever you know and suddenly this woman walks up to me and I, I was completely starstruck and I just kind of went I really love your book and in and then she just said well have you considered going to Cambridge for the master's and I kind of went no, I'm the first time I'm going to go to college, you know. And she basically said I should apply to Cambridge University, which, as you know, is one of the greatest universities in Britain, of um, to do a master's. And I was so stunned. Mm. And then, long story, um, I had a boyfriend at the time who didn't believe I'd ever get in and, and all kinds of things. So basically, I pretty much sent the forms off to prove him wrong. And next thing, three or four months later, I found myself in the position of having an offer to go to Cambridge to study criminology, which I desperately wanted to do, but with absolutely no money. So to cut long story short, I got my degree, I borrowed the money to go, and off I went to Cambridge University for a year to study criminology as a master's, and it was amazing. Mm. And it's the oldest criminology institute in the world, so it was great. You know, the people we got to meet, the people we got to talk to, um, it was fantastic. And it, at that time then, there was a lot of work coming about women in prison, and I can remember suddenly thinking, well, all this is about young women, what about older women? And that that kind of then, when I left out, I had to get a job, and that, that's how it happened. So it doesn't make a great deal of sense as a kind of narrative of, well, this happened and this happened and this happened. But it's always been something that is there, and I come back to it. And so most of what I do at the moment now is about women, uh, and it is about prisons. And then it always kind of goes in a circle. So I, I kind of do a bit on families, and then maybe I go and do a bit about ageing, but then I come back and do a bit more about prison. And then I've done things on victims as well, but it always kind of takes me back to the prison. Mm. Yeah, and I haven't gotten obviously answer as to why. Do you think there's any, you talked about being what we call a first gen, first yeah, generation, yeah. you know, um, college person, yeah, yeah. academic. Is there any sense of, 
you know, I know what it feels like to be an underdog and not having as many chances as others more privileged? I think I've, I think, I mean, I mentioned you picked up that faith. I mean, I, I've been a Christian since three days before my 16th birthday, and that's driven me quite a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't say underdog. My parents have been fantastic in many, many ways. My my father worked, as work, he's 76 in, in a couple of days, and he's worked really hard all his life. He left school at 15 with no qualifications, worked his way up. Um, you know, and they were very much into education. But I think looking back, I do have that sense of it certainly wasn't easy for me. Mm-hmm. And I certainly didn't have those privileges. Um, and I, at school, you know, I was bullied at school. I was picked on because I was clever. I was thin. I was nerdy but before it was cool to be a nerd, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I did get bullied all the way through school. Um, and I do think there's that sense, thinking about it, I think there is that sense of injustice and wrongness that's always driven me. Mm-hmm. Um, always, I look back now and think the stuff I get angry about. And my fourteen-year-old daughter is fortunately just the same. I'm quite proud of her. The stuff I get re- that really gets me going is stuff that I think is unfair or unjust. And mm-hmm. you know, I get very angry about poverty and racism and LGBTQI issues and all this kind of thing. And I think it is that sense of it being unfair. I suppose because of when I was bullied at school, I didn't think that was fair. Mm-hmm. Um, and also things to do with authority. I don't think. You know, systems back in the 80s were very good at protecting people. But so I wish there was a nice, easy answer. People always ask me, was my father in jail? And the answer is, well, no. Mm. But if you look back, um, I've done my family history. If you look back 50 years, 80 years, 100 years, I've got family members who died in in the workhouses um, in this country because they were poor. It's like the Charles Dickens kind of Mm. story where the debtor's prison. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think as part of your faith, there's that sense that there but for the grace of God go I? Yeah, I think I've, I think I've always said that. Um, mm-hmm. When I used to volunteer in drug homelessness and drug rehab, I, I've always done quite a lot of volunteering. And I, I used to volunteer in homelessness and drug rehab. And I remember doing that stuff and realizing that some of these people, you know, could have been my friends, could have been me if I'd made different choices. And I'm often very aware that, you know, my great-grandmother died of tuberculosis at the age of 28, mm-hmm. in, you know, very poor. And my mum and dad didn't have any money starting out. They came from very, very poor backgrounds. So, yeah, I do have that kind of sense of, I suppose it could have been me. Is there a um, a difference in terms of how our cultures view prisoners do you think in terms of the u.s and the uk is there def- sort of a different ethos like this is the criminal That's justice such a good system. question um one of the really odd things about britain is i think from a u.s perspective there's a tendency to think britain's in europe if you if you see what i mean people talk about mm-hmm. coming to europe and they, they yeah and in many ways, of course, Britain is in Europe, although many British people are trying to get out of Europe as much as they can at the moment with the EU. But actually, in legal terms, Britain is not close to Europe. We're almost like, I always joke, we're, we're like a, a state that's out in the sea somewhere off New Jersey. <laughs> um, and, and there's a great book um, by, I think it's Whitman, where he compares the history of American criminal justice with the history of what he calls European criminal justice. And he lumps together France, Germany and the UK as penal systems that have got different foundations. And he talks about um, the American experience of slavery and contrasts it with the European experience of revolutions and so on. But there's a fundamental flaw in that book because he lumps together, he links together the UK 
with France and Germany. Mm-hmm. But actually, in the way we deal with prisoners and our prison system, we are much more like the US. We, we don't have the death penalty at all in the UK. We haven't had the death penalty for murder since 1965. And so we're not like the US in that sense. But then we are like, we are like the states that don't have it, if, if that makes sense. But over the last 30 years, we have followed the US a very great deal in penal policy and more than the rest of Europe. So, for example, um, our prison population is increasing. It's the number of women in prison has trebled. It's just going down now, but it had trebled over 20 years. Uh, We're imprisoning more people for longer. Mm -hmm. And we imprison more people for longer than anywhere else in Europe, including Turkey. So we we're actually a very high imprisoning country in the European context. Now we're not imprisoning as many people as the US. Nobody but we're very much No, nobody is. But we're very much up there. And when we talk about the mass imprisonment epidemic, we talk about the US, we talk about the UK, we talk about Australia, um, and this this ma- epidemic of mass imprisonment. So to some extent, to think about there being differences between the UK and the US there are differences, but actually the UK experience is far closer to the US experience. Now, we don't have, there are some things we don't really have in the same way. We, we do have gang culture and we have organised crime, but it's not as extensive as in the US. And so our prisons are not so divided on gang lines as many US prisons. Um, we have race issues, but our race issues are different to US race issues. Mm-hmm. But we still have overrepresentation of black and Asian people in our prisons. Um, and young black men in this country are more likely to go to jail than university, like in the US. So we have those kinds of things. I mean, our gun culture is very different to the US. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our prison guards don't carry guns. Hmm. Uh, because our police, on the whole, well, I say we, they don't carry guns. They they can carry guns, but it, 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 it's much more controlled. We're not a gun culture, if, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So th- there's all kinds of similarities i mean the weird thing that kind of i think americans don't realize is how much we take stuff from u.s penal policy so things like um megan's law on sex offenders Mm -hmm. that you had we have that um and it became sarah's law after a little girl called sarah Payne who was murdered by a convicted sex offender and so we we adopted a kind of version of megan's law we have a version of three strikes and you're out which we got from from you um we have electronic tagging which we got from you, and of course you got from Spider-Man cartoons. <laughs> no, really, really, really. Did you know that? I did not know ah, that. Ah, well, I can't remember the name of the judge, but in the mid-70s, I think, maybe early 80s, and I, I have to go and check this, I should have checked it, there was a judge, and he was a comic book fanatic, and there was an episode, there's a strip cartoon in one of the, the comic books, where the Green Goblin puts a kind of radio transmitter on Spider-Man so you can track where he is. And basically this judge was a comic book obsessive and thought, that's a really good idea, and got together with a friend of his who made um, locks and burglar alarms, and they made a prototype. Oh. And basically then they sold this, and it is what we now have as electronic tagging. But I have it came to from tell Sp- you, I just interviewed a woman named uh, Kat Schuler, and her husband was one of the main 
people at Marvel Comics. Oh, wow! Wow! And uh, she's still, uh, he's, he died uh, young, and she still goes and talks to children about Marvel Comics oh, and my Captain daughter, America. Oh, my daughter's a Marvel, Marvel obsessive. She would love that. Well, I'll have to give you the contact information oh, after but, our conversation. <laughs> absolutely. But no, American stuff, I mean, it's it's interesting in criminal justice terms because when, when I go to U.S. conferences um, and world conferences, we take a lot – in Britain, we take a lot from the U.S. in terms of criminal justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it doesn't kind of go back the other way. But, we, you know, we, we don't look so much at Europe. We don't look at the Scandinavian countries, mm-hmm. anything like as much in a sense as we should, where they, they have, they're very low imprisoning countries. I mean, if you go to Germany and the Netherlands, an 18-month prison sentence there is a long sentence. Is that um, work better in terms of your, your study? Is that, I mean, I know this is a big question and it's a loaded question, but is that a more successful model? I, I think it is. Um, I, I, I genuinely think it is. I, I don't, I think the disadvantages and the disbenefits of long prison sentences kind of outweigh the benefits. I mean, there is an argument, obviously, around public protection. There are a small number of people who pose such an extreme danger that maybe they need to be somewhere away from everybody else. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the Norwegians have just dealt with this in the Anders Breivik case. You, you might know about Breivik. He's the one who massacred a, a num- many, many young people. Um, and he is effectively, because he's so dangerous, he's basically a neo-Nazi and he's not going to change his view. Mm-hmm. They want to keep obviously everybody else safe but he's on an island and he has a huge amount of freedom on that island um but he just can't leave the island but the norwegians are very much you know that's their approach to it and many of these countries um they're much more rehabilitation minded as well than we are we have become very very punitive like the us Mm -hmm. we've got the war on drugs we borrowed the same language um we've got pretty much all those same kind of initiatives you've got on, on a small island, mm-hmm. um, we've gone very much the same way uh, in terms of things like longer prison sentences, um, like three strikes and you out, and so on and so on and so on. So we are very, very different, particularly places like Germany, the Netherlands, and certainly the Scandinavian countries. I mean, the Scandinavian countries use fines and community penalties far more, they imprison far less, mm-hmm. and I think it's far less damaging because it, it doesn't rip families apart in the same way that mass imprisonment does. Would you talk a little bit about, I know I know that, you know, one of the things that you focus on is what happens to the families, what happens to the children. Would you talk a little bit about that? Because I think our listeners would like to know um, more about that. Okay. And um, when I'm talking now, I'm going to talk about I'll talk about the UK and I'll talk about the US because a lot of the research on prisoners families is UK, US, Australia, New Zealand. Um, until about 10 years ago, it was commonplace to say that prisoners families are invisible victims. We'd always t- use the phrase invisible victims or hidden victims. Mm-hmm. Uh, there wasn't that much research on prisoners families. And in the last 10 years, there's been, there's been this huge explosion of interest so for the listeners point of view there's loads and loads and loads of things they can read and of course i could say read my book read my book read read my books i've got two books you can get them on amazon Uh, but there's a huge amount of work you can read and the first thing to say is that for some families having somebody sent to, to jail or to prison is the best thing that can happen to them if you've got 
a mom or dad or say teenage son or daughter in the family, particularly if they're involved in gang crime, they're using drugs, they've got the kind of street life coming into the house, then or if you've got parents with substance abuse and addictions where the money is all being spent on that, then suddenly having that person away from the home can be the best thing. Equally, if you've got a violent parent, if you've got dad who's always you know, attacking mom and attacking the kids, mm-hmm. then having that parent, or you've got sexual abuse, mm-hmm. then having that parent out of the house can be the best thing. But those benefits are, are almost always accompanied by other negative things so obvious things in a family if you've got a dad who goes a father who goes to jail pop goes to jail then if you've got a traditional family where dad goes out to work father goes out to work and mom stays home then you lose the income you you lose the father's income and it's quite important as well that a criminal income is still an income so if the male in the family is is a drug dealer but he's bringing money in Mm -hmm. I know people, some of you listeners will hate me for saying this. It's not that I'm arguing in favour of drug dealing. But if he is the main income earner for the family, Mm -hmm. then that income is lost. Mm -hmm. So your first major consequence is if the the main earner, who is very often the male, goes to prison, there's a loss of income. Now, there can also be... um, other very practical consequences because if you lose that income then maybe the family can't afford to pay um, rent if they're renting property or they can't pay a mortgage on a house and so the first consequence can be a very basic financial consequence the house the family can just end up in poverty because um, that 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 income is lost mm-hmm. uh, the UK is slightly different to the US because we have a different benefit system but our benefit system uh, has undergone massive cuts recently as well. So it's not as comfortable, not comfortable, but it's not as supportive as it used to be. But the first big consequence is very often loss of income, which can then trickle into things like loss of accommodation. Um, prisoners' children uh, then become very likely to move, uh, move caregivers and actually move houses. And so many of them, I think the main figure is they move something like five times in mm. the year following their father's imprisonment. Oh my and so you've got a basic financial thing about not paying rent or mortgage or those costs, which can have knock-on effects on the money in the family. You've also got the emotional um, impact. Uh, you've got the shock for the partners, um, but you've also got the shock for the kids. And very often it's experiences like a bereavement um, because they're just not there anymore. And one of the biggest problems for the children is prisoners parents don't know how to explain to the children where the other parent has gone oh how interesting so in in the uk we often say that one third of prisoners children get told the truth one third get lied to and one third don't get anything get told anything at all uh-huh. and i'm not entirely sure what the u.s um lies are the classic lies but um in britain back in the 1970s when i was growing up if your dad was in jail it was common to say he was working away in the oil rigs in scotland because there were oil rigs in scotland I see. um and in in germany they say oh he's working in poland i see um i, I what they say in the u.s i don't know i i don't know unless you just say oh, they're working out of state mm. you get them saying things like they're working for the government I, I had a student once who I interviewed because her husband was in jail and her little girl, she told her little girl that daddy was away working as a smurf because oh. he had a blue and white uniform. Oh, my 
awkwardness. And so there's this whole shame. Oh, God, yeah. And and, and I imagine that. You know, what's better, being told dad is a smurf or your dad is in prison, <gasps> and then you have to take that? And I know that um, in the in the U.S., people find out because their classmates yep, read it yep. in the newspaper. Oh, absolutely. And then what happens is, of course, the other thing is it's difficult for parents sometimes. If, if dad's a sex offender, then there's a big problem. You know, how do you tell the children that's what dad's done? particularly oh. if he's offended against children. There are some great guidebooks, and I know there's some US books as well, on telling parents how to tell the children. And some of the support groups can help parents tell the children. There's a lot of mm. advice. I mean, if anybody's listening to this who's affected by this, there's some great advice out there on how to tell the kids. Um, and all the evidence is that if parents are open with the children and tell them things in an age-appropriate way, that's the best thing for the kids. Because what happens is the kids blame themselves Mm-hmm. They think, oh, my, you know, oh God, I said something. What, you know, why has my daddy or my mom gone away? Um, it's they blame themselves, and yeah, they do get told by the classmates. Sometimes they'll get told because it's in the papers. Sometimes because other kids' parents will say, "Don't play with that child. His dad's a drug mm. dealer." So there's this shame um, on top of the grief and the loss, and so then you have some real sort of mental health issues. And the other thing with the kids. To- just yeah. to come back to this thing with the kids, is if you get parents who lie to the children, now, you know, kids can read sometimes when they're very young. So the parents will be taking the child to visit, but without telling the child it's a prison. So they'll say, oh, daddy's going working for the government in a secret place. But the kids aren't, aren't stupid. They'll look at it and go, HMP, Her Majesty's prison. And then the kids go, oh, my God, dad's in jail and mom doesn't know. Oh, my God. So the kids are looking around thinking, does mom not know? He's in a prison? Because the kids will say, oh, he's a spy or he's working for the government or something. So the kids are then going, oh, I know. Does my mom not know? One of the problems we have in the States is that, um, and I don't, I'm not an expert in this. This is just uh, a little bit of that I know, is people have to travel very long distances. We have a small version of that. We have a tiny, yeah, we have a small version of that. And that's particularly an issue. I'm going to talk about stigma in a minute. But we, we have a very particular issue with women's prisons because we have so few women's prisons. And the big women's prison in London, and this is a good thing, it's closed. But it has created a problem that women are held a lot further away from their families. So we have a smaller version of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been to Bedford Hills Women's Prison, the New York Women's Prison. Um, and I've talked to the people there that do the uh, projects in New York with the kids coming up from New York City up to the prison. Mm-hmm. And the riding the bus stuff. And I've talked to those people. But yeah, I mean, we have a small version of that. Um and it is a long way relative, and there's very little public transport. But to go back to your point about stigma, I think the stigma thing is one of the worst things because prisoners' partners, family members, they blame themselves and the newspapers blame them. The blame is always put on women rather than men. There's always a kind of assumption that a prisoner's wife must have known. That's the phrase. She must have known and must have benefited. And very often they don't. Um but it's not just actual stigma. I mean, I've interviewed many, many prisoners' partners, prisoners' family members, and they are sometimes victims of physical assaults. They're victims of criminal damage. They're victims of threats and so on. But the other big thing is fear. And many of them are terrified of that stigmatization, even if it doesn't really exist. And so the mental health issues, you've got things like anxiety, you have depression, um, which are real issues. And for the kids, particularly teenagers, they the girls very often develop eating disorders, um, behavioural issues and all these kind of things. So the mental health issues are huge. But the other thing is the stigma. 
even when they the communities are quite friendly they're always terrified of that stigma so for example way back in 1996 when i first started working on prisoners families i went to a weekend conference held by a a charity which in in britain existed for the families of very serious offenders and i was very honored to be invited to this they said well come and spend the weekend with us with our family members and just listen and whatever and i i knew that some of their family members were family members of very famous particularly murderers in mm. britain um and you may or may not know about the case of James Boulder, who was a two-year-old. He was killed by two ten-year-olds in, in Liverpool back in the early 90s. And I knew from the newspaper reporting that the mother of one of these child murderers went oh. to this group. Oh. And, I, you know, and I got there, I got to this room, and it was a welcome night, and we all had name badges on, and we were introducing ourselves and so on. You know, And I, I knew there were people in that room whose family members were, were really famous murderers. But I didn't recognise a single surname. And I didn't realise till the following morning, when somebody was talking to me, they'd all changed their names mm. because they were terrified of being recognised as having that person in their family. So the women had gone back to their unmarried names. Mm. Some of them had invented names. They called themselves Smith rather than something unusual. They had all changed their names mm. one way or another because so that they weren't infamous. How was it to be in that space with, I, I'm just trying to imagine what that experience is like as a parent. I mean, how do you, how, how was that for you? Well, I wasn't a parent then and I was very young, but the thing is from their point of view is when people feel that stigmatized, loneliness is a massive thing as well. I mean, the Britain is like, the US. In some communities, people are very open about having family members in prison. But in other communities, people aren't. And so many prisoners' partners in particular feel very, very lonely. And they don't tell anybody mm-hmm. where their husband or boyfriend or child or even parent is. Mm, um, it's like the leprosy. Of oh, absolutely. 21st century. And I've taught, I've taught students where I've got one at the moment whose father's in jail, but she hasn't told anybody else in her, her class group. Um, but she's told me. And I've taught many students over the years who have family members in jail, but nobody else knows. But from their point of view in that room, suddenly that's a space where they're all equal and they can talk. And the way that charity organised itself was that they had monthly get-togethers where they had, they called them lunches, and they all brought food and they talked and they offered support to each other in a non-judgmental way. And and that was the most important thing because there were women in that room whose partners and children had committed sometimes really awful crimes. I mean, mm. really mm. awful crimes. Mm. And they had nowhere else they could be honest. And I'm quite interested, actually, in the, the way in which social media and the internet are helping this. And I, I haven't done the research yet, but I'm, I'm hoping to, which is mm-hmm. there are some wonderful... Um, websites now but also things like Facebook pages uh, and again this might be useful for listeners where there are Facebook pages for prisoners wives, prisoners partners, prisoners parents and I think the internet can offer people a way of feeling less isolated mm, because yeah, they can connect without actually telling anybody near where they are I mean I interviewed a woman about oh how long ago again about a while ago and she outwardly was quite wealthy woman a a while ago um i interviewed a woman and it turned out her two sons had been professional bank robbers 
And they had basically robbed banks together for a long time until they got caught. And she worked in a university. She worked in administration in a university. And for 14 years, her office mates never knew that every weekend she was going to see one or the other mm. um, in high-security prisons. And one of the high-security prisons is on the Isle of Wight, which isn't quite like Alcatraz, but it is on an island. Mm -hmm. And she would have to go there from London, a good couple of hours' drive on a boat trip, every fortnight to see her son. And she didn't tell anybody. Mm. The um, secret life. Mm, and there's a lot of it about, and there's a lot of, you know, when you start talking, you there's a lot of it about, but people still are not very open about it. Are you finding that your research is... Um, more welcome now that we have such mass incarceration? Are people more interested in it or less because it's it's becoming perhaps more punitive so they're not so interested in a more compassionate Oh, that's a wonderful view. question. That is such a difficult question. Oh, it's a brilliant question. Um, in Britain, we have the Daily Mail, which is a very conservative newspaper, and it's it's not like Fox News, but it's it's it's, edg it's edging that way. It's the closest you would get. You, you know what yeah. I mean? But it's it's kind of the voice of kind of Middle England. It's very traditional, white, middle class, conservative. Yeah. Um, and the readers of the Daily Mail actually hate me. Hate me. The work I did in the European Court of Human Rights, they actually hate me for. Though they don't know it's me, they hate because luckily the journalist didn't name me. He just um, <laughs> lampooned my work horribly. But, yeah, it's a really good question because what you find is some communities, therefore, you know, prison isn't an equal impact employer, an equal opportunity employer. Prison affects the poor. It affects um, the most socially excluded people in society. I mean, prisoners' kids, this isn't usually the only problem they've got to cope with. They're probably already poor. They're already... Mm -hmm. not doing brilliantly well at school. They've already got family problems. Many of them have already experienced bereavement, ill health amongst parents and everything. So prisoners' kids have already got loads of problems. Mm -hmm. um, so prison, and the mass imprisonment epidemic in particular, targets the poorest and the most dispossessed and the most excluded in our society anyway, and certainly in the US. Mm -hmm. Mass imprisonment is particularly targeting African-American, black, Latin. And we have people who are in prison just waiting to be sentenced. Well, so do we. Okay. We have demand as well. Um, but what's happening, it's a really good question, which is that in some ways there's a lot more interest. And if you look at the US, UK government, um, they've had several reports that says a supportive family can really stop people reoffending. So the Farmer report that came out last year by Lord Farmer talks about prisoners' families being the golden thread that run through the whole of the prison system. And they can be really important in helping prisoners during the sentence and actually in then stopping them reoffending when they get out. So you've got that side of it. But then the flip side is that real punitive attitude that says, well, these people are criminals. They've offended. Why should they see their families? You know, we, we should kind of, you know, lock them up on bread and water and chains and, and not, mm -hmm. not do anything like that. And my argument us, about that. Us and them. Mm, but my argument about that is always, well, even if that's your view of prisoners, it's not my view, but it can be somebody else's view, the kids don't deserve to suffer. So when I talk about prisoners' families, if I get somebody who always asks the question, well, you know, why do you care about these people? You know, they're evil criminals. I will say, yeah, but it's not the kids' fault. And I always talk about prisoners' children. I mean, I firmly believe in human rights for prisoners and equality and all those, you, you know, because it matters. I think, you know, obviously prisoners are people and deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. But for those people that are the other way, the extreme right wing, I will always say, yeah, but what about the kids? They, you know, they haven't done anything wrong. 
Mm-hmm. And how is that received? Um, usually quite well, actually, because people don't realise how much prisoners' children suffer. Mm-hmm. It's when you start giving examples. And the other thing, and it's like the US as well, is visits vary massively between prisons. And so um, some prisons are fabulously welcoming to families and they have all kinds of family projects and family days where the kids can go in um, and be with their, their parents and it's quite relaxed. I mean, the big thing we don't have that you have in some states is we don't have conjugal visits. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do not have conjugal visiting. So we like in, in some US states, you can go and spend time overnight with your, your prisoner. You can't do that in the UK, mostly. Mm-hmm. Um, but some prisons are fabulously welcoming. There's a prison in Wales which keeps winning awards for being so family-friendly and it's great. But other prisons are big, old, scary places which are really mm. quite unwelcoming to families. Um, and there's massive variation. So some prisons are great for kids and others are just and, and visitors and some are just awful. Mm. Um, and it's so very, it very, like very frightening. Trauma on top of trauma. I, you know, I, I, I wonder what it's like for you living in a world that is looks like it's going in a direction right now anyway, very opposite from uh, recognizing humanity. I'm, I'm and- laughing because I despair. The, the wonderful thing, I suppose, is that my daughter's 14. I love my daughter. She's the only one I've got, only child I've got. And I think because of me being a mom, um, I've always been very open with her about what I do. Mm-hmm. And I will never forget when she was five years old, she got into trouble. At, well, not into trouble at school, but the teachers talked to me because one of her friend's fathers was a police officer. And she got into a big argument in the schoolyard about her friend had come in and said, prisons are really nice places. Prisoners get PlayStations to play with. And they're like, it's oh, like being dear. holiday. Yeah. Oh, and my Alex went, no, they're not. They're horrible. And this little girl went, my dad's a policeman. And Alex is like, well, my mum's a university professor. And basically, they had a big argument at five years old about prisons being horrible. And I think the the thing that cheers me up slightly is assuming that the whole world doesn't blow up in the next five years. Hmm. Young people are very switched on about some of these issues. Are you taking solace in that now? I think so, yeah. I, I kind of hope. I mean, it's like in the US, isn't it? You've got, whenever I come over to the US, I meet so many really radical committed people you know the anti-imprisonment movement in the u.s is much stronger than it is over here the abolitionist movement in the u.s is much stronger in many ways than over here so it's almost Mm. as if every everything's becoming polarized so it's almost as if the people who are really really punitive have got more punitive and then the people who aren't you know we keep on campaigning we keep on keep on getting on we keep trying um yeah, I think if, it's a difficult question to answer. I think it probably depends what mood you get me in, if, if that makes sense. As to whether I'm just absolutely despairing. So you you have this big profession, you have a family. Are there things that you do uh, sort of intentionally to keep yourself running and going and, and you know, okay and, and oh, healthy? That's a really good question. Um, yeah, that is a good question, actually. Um I, I should explain that just over a year ago, I, I've always had a history of eczema and, and skin issues, but I, I was first diagnosed with arthritis, osteoarthritis in my knee about 10 years ago, my left knee. Um, and it was painful, and I just kept thinking, oh, I'll be fine, I'll be fine. And then two years ago now, 2016, I was getting more and more pain kind of in the top of my left leg. And I, I mean, your, your listeners might laugh because I didn't actually realise where my hip was. 
and I, I was and I was away at a conference in Canada and I had probably had I kind of had time to think and I thought ah, you know I've been walking around because I love seeing new places and I was at this work conference and I thought ow you know that hurts and I, I went on the internet and realized very quickly that the bit of me that was hurting was my left hip and I thought hmm arthritis because I knew I had it in my knee and then being me I spent a couple of months being really busy at work and really busy with family and everything else and ignoring it until I bumped into a friend of mine a few months later and by that point I had a terrible limp and he basically just looked at me and went you know what have you done you look like you've been run over by a truck mm. and I kind of went oh and my friend ordered me to go to the doctor so anyway I went to the doctor who instantly x-rayed it and within three well within eight days I was seeing a consultant and three weeks after that I had my hip replaced I had no cartilage in my hip at all oh. I had the hip of an 85 year old oh. and I'd never had a night in hospital apart from giving birth to my daughter so I was terrified and I had a hip replacement and that actually was awful because it meant I had to stop. I had to spend three months off work. And for six weeks of that, I I was on two crutches. Then I was on, and I, I now have a stick, which I use when I need it. And I became legally disabled at that point, which mentally was quite a, a difficult thing for me to accept, I suppose. And then as soon as that pain was fixed, it became very clear that my knee had got worse. So I could feel the pain from that. So my lovely, lovely GP, my lovely doctor said, well, you know, we'll send you back to the same consultant. And he replaced my knee. So mm. within the space of a year, in fact, wow. in six months, within six, it was six months a day, I had my knee and my hip done. Uh, so I have a brand new hip and a brand new knee. And in terms of looking after myself, that has been a massive wake up call in actually making me take care of myself because I've been very bad at... I suppose insisting that I get to rest, insisting that I get to sit down. I mean, you know, I'm I'm like a I'm like an over enthusiastic puppy most of the time. Somebody suggests something like, "Yo, Helen, do you want to go to a prison?" I'm like, "Yeah." You know, my my <laughs> boss said to me, you know, three weeks before she was going to Uganda in Africa for a, a work event, she said to me, you know, Helen, my previous boss, I was talking about Uganda. She said, "Well, I'm going to Uganda. John's come with me." And I went, "Yeah." Mm. And that was three three weeks away. So suddenly, you know, there I was in Africa, and of course, being me, I added an extra day with my boss's permission. I went to a women's prison, mm. being me, because whenever I go away with work for one <laughs> thing, like a conference, I'll try and I'll try and do other things. So I go to women's prisons or something, you know. So, oh my so suddenly, I've had to go. I can't do it. And it, in terms of looking after myself, that's actually been really hard because now I've just been back in hospital in April just for an infection. And again, that that was ridiculous. It was something that. I fell over and grazed my knee and then I got cellulitis and I was in hospital. So in terms of looking after myself, I've always been very bad at it. And mm -hmm. I do talk to my friends. I make sure I talk to my friends. I I rest. I nap if I have to. I've been quite selfish about now about working at home when I can rather than going into work into my office just because I think I should. I've become, I mu I've become much more... Um, strict about saying no to things it's very difficult for me because I want to please people but mm -hmm. I've become very forceful about saying no I'm not doing that and it's difficult it's a battle in my head because I always feel like I should mm -hmm. and the other thing I've done recently um, in February is I have a puppy mm. and it sounds completely insane having a puppy when I've got so much going on because I've got a husband I've got a husband who works full-time I have a 14-year-old daughter who's in a good school. She's got some, some issues of her own, but she's wonderful. I'm always busy. Um, and so in a sense, you know, we've got two cats as well. You know, in a sense, having a puppy was a ridiculous thing to do. But I had a friend who rescued 
a Pomeranian puppy a year ago, and she's disabled. She's got um, arthritis the same as me. And I kind of fell in love with her puppy. And then I talked it over with my daughter, and um, we didn't <laughs> – you're going to laugh – we didn't talk to my husband because we thought he'd be sensible and say we couldn't have a dog. So we didn't tell him. Um, <laughs> we <laughs> – I think this is partly through being older as well. It's realising what my husband needs to know and what he doesn't. Bless him. So um, – we we kind of decided we wanted a, a Pomeranian puppy and we went off and got a Pomeranian puppy and brought him home because we knew once my husband saw this puppy, he sure. he would just be in love with the trick puppy. In the book. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I love my husband, bless it. My husband, Nick, is wonderful. We've been married 20 years this year. I've known him since I was at college and he's wonderful. But we just kind of thought, he doesn't need to know. So we didn't tell him. And we brought this puppy home. And this puppy has been amazing. Uh, and it's made me realise as well you know, I'm nearly 50. I wanted a puppy. He's my puppy. And he gets me out of the house. I have to walk him. Mm. Um, I am walking more because I've got him. It gives mm -hmm. me an excuse to go out in woodland near here. We've been discovering, I've lived here for nearly well, 26 years, but I'm finding woodland around here. I didn't know it was here. But suddenly mm -hmm. I'm going because you know, I'm taking the dog. I'm discovering meeting new people. Mm. Um, and it's been wonderful, actually, and having that kind of time just to go, going out with my dog. And the other thing, this might make you laugh as well, is with, with things like <laughs> like meetings or things, I'm very aware now of, you know, I could sort of, I could do, carry on doing this, which I'm not enjoying and it's not useful, or I could go home and be with my puppy. Oh, absolutely. So, so you're, pre you're preaching to the converted oh, right really? here. My dog, my Jack Russell is right <gasps> behind nice. me right now. Uh, well, my Pomeranian's at doggy daycare today, and it's one reason ah. I'm glad, because if not, he'd be barking now. He'd be jumping up and down and barking. I saw the picture of your little no. puppy on Facebook. Yeah. Small baby. No, he's lovely. He's funny. Mm. But I, but in terms of looking after myself, I do that. I mean, there's been some major things I, I can't do anymore. Like, I used to lounge about in a hot bath with a book, but I, I have to have showers now because I can't physically get in and out of a bath, and that's affected me. But I've become much more... It's, it's a learning curve with me because I'm quite bad at it. But I'm having to become much more selfish about mm -hmm. saying what I can and cannot do. And it's not easy. I mean, mm -hmm. and also I'm getting older as well, which is, yeah, you know, I'm 50 next year and I'm not like I was. But certainly it's been a very fast learning curve in terms of having to look after myself and also to prioritise medical appointments and prioritise things like that. Because the other thing is I've now got, a lot of other arthritis so I've got it in my neck my back my, my top of my spine I've got it pretty much all down my spine I've got it in my lower oh. spine I've seen physio for my lower spine um I have a lot of osteoarthritis and so although I've had the surgery and it's wonderful to have that done and I've still got some stiffness and everything and obviously I'm recovering from the surgery I'm still healing I do have extensive osteoarthritis in other joints in my body so it's not like I've had the hip done and I'm always going to be well. I have got mm. this long-term condition. Mm -hmm. uh, and my right knee, I know, is is worsening gradually. I'm trying to ignore it. <laughs> mm -hmm. If you don't, you know, trying to make a fuss because I don't have any more time off work for a while. And, you know, but I can definitely feel it. Mm -hmm. And I do get incredibly tired. And I suspect I probably got tired before. But I'm having to actually be quite forceful now and say, no, I'm really tired, tired and I, I can't do that is that does that become a sort of a change in your relationship then with your daughter as well yeah i mean it 
It was you incredible. Have to say, you know, there's there has to be something about no, I can't take you to the shops or oh, whatever. Oh, you know, you she's know. one. She she is fabulous because last year, um, I mean, it can't have been easy for her. She was 13 years old, and suddenly her mom, you know, her mom, she, her mom had two major operations, and she was just amazing. Um, and she is fabulous at telling me, "Mummy, you look tired. Sit down." Or saying, you know, mommy, have you got your stick? And I know, I keep telling her it's not her job to look after me, but actually she is absolutely awesome at just telling me, you know, going, mommy, you know, mommy, your feet are swollen up, sit down. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talk about it a lot because she is 14, she's 14 and a half, she's, she's smart, she's clever, and she's come out, she's, she's recently... Um, She's got some some eating issues and anxiety issues, which she's very open about, which I I like because I've always kind of hidden things about mental health where she's very open. And she's um, very open now. She's sort of negotiating things about sexuality and things as well. She's very open, which is just wonderful. So my daughter is actually wonderful. It's kind of other people that aren't so supportive. Uh, I do struggle with other people assuming that or because I've had my hip replaced and my knee replaced I'm fine now mm-hmm. um and I sometimes have to be very I have to keep explaining I mean sometimes you know I will make sure I have a, a stick my walking stick with me okay because I need it sometimes to lean on but actually also as a signifier to other people that I'm not what mm-hmm. I was and also as a signifier to me that sometimes I have to slow up and and just living with the reality that you might be disappointing people and they'll survive it's really hard mm-hmm it's no, really I think, difficult. I think the listeners are going to, I can just imagine there's a lot of people nodding their head because we, you know, as women, even though we know we're smart and talented, we still get a lot of our identity from being pleasing, you know, oh, humans. And the other thing is with me, I mean, my, I always worry about, you know, my house. I, because my mom was a stay at home mom. Mostly, she worked part-time when I got older, but when I was small, she was a stay-at-home mom, and her house, even though it's immaculate, my mom's house is lovely. Um, I've always worried about, you know, the state of my house being untidy, and over the last year, actually, I've had a lot of renovation work done in the house, which has been great. Um, but I even now, even now, I worry about the house being a mess, or something not being done in the house. My daughter kind of says, well, mommy, it doesn't matter, you know. But even now, I kind of think, oh, I can't do, you know, I can't do that, because... You know, I kind of feel like I should. I, it's that it is the classic double burden of you know. I do still work full time. I work full time. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't drop any hours down. I didn't go part time after my surgeries. I, well, I, I had time off, but I've gone back. You, you know, I work full time. I sit on a well. I sit on a kind of. I'm appointed by the Minister of Justice to monitor the management of sex offenders. So I do that. Um, I do stuff with my daughter. I do spend quite a lot of time, and this might make your listeners laugh, by saying, mummy is not an octopus. <laughs> Since I was, Alex was little, and my daughter was little, I've always said, um, you know you know that kind of mom thing when you feel like you should have eight arms? Mm-hmm. You, you know, and, and I'll have, mummy, can I have, mummy, I need whatever, and with my husband as well, and I'll end up there going, mummy is not an octopus. <laughs> and I say this all the time. It's a family joke. I've been saying it since my daughter was one, you know, mummy is not an octopus. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, today... Today, before I talked to you, I had to juggle dropping the dog off at doggy daycare. My daughter had a do- nurse appointment, which then turned into I had a, an asthma assessment, which then turned into I had to go and 
get some new headphones because I left mine in my office. I then had to go off to a work meeting. I've come back. Um, I'm now talking to you and then I'm doing some work. Luckily, I'm working at home this afternoon now. And then I'm going to go and pick up my daughter, pick up doggy daycare, make and some food for something. supper. And yeah, you have to get yeah. some food on the table. Yeah, yeah. And I said to my husband, I mean, my husband, bless him, I love him. But, you know, he has days when he gets up, he has a cup of tea, you know, a cup of coffee, whatever, whatever. He goes to work. He comes home. I have entire days based on get up, take dog out, have grocery delivery, go to work, talk to doctors about doctor's appointment, you know, do dog, whatever, go to work, you know, phone, daughter school. One day my daughter's school this phone this week because she'd, be, she'd been sick at school, had to go and pick her up, bring mm-hmm. her home. And so suddenly my average day is, is not like my husband's day would be get up, drink coffee, drive to work, do work, come home. Eat mm-hmm. supper, play computer games, and watch TV. Which it's more like whack a mole. Where oh you're God, absolutely, to... <laughs> absolutely, absolutely yeah. whack a mole. Um, well, well, the moles pop up and you don't expect them. I mean, one day this week, what day was it? it was Tuesday, it must have been. Um, yeah, Tuesday. I was working at home and I have an article to finish. And you know, I can work at home sometimes, which is lovely. And I was working at home and I was sitting quite happily. And I thought, okay, you know, this dog was at. Yeah, dog was at daycare. Everything was quiet. I had a cup of coffee in my hand. I thought, right, I can finish writing this article, which I'm overdue for anyway, you know. And then suddenly I get a call, and it's, oh, it's, it's my daughter's school. And I think, oh, I know what's happened. And she's not been very well. And because she's in a lovely school, it's a what you would call a public school. It's a state school. It's not a private school. Um, but it is 20 miles away because it's a good school. So I suddenly mm-hmm. had to go and get her. Mm-hmm. which is a long way well, you know, and then come back and then of course I was looking after her because she wasn't really well and I oh. and mm. yeah it, it's multitasking to the extreme mm-hmm. and sometimes yeah sometimes then of course I do kind of lose it completely and find myself yelling at everybody which is, is not the best way best way to be but I mean I do read a lot of books mm-hmm. and the other thing I do a lot of at the moment because it makes me sit down is I do a lot of my family history on the internet and I've been oh, really, really enjoying doing that mm. and I've got I started doing it on and off about, well, before my daughter was born, really, because I have an unusual surname. Cod is a very unusual surname. And my family are from South Wales, uh, but I was interested. And my dad's dad died during the war. He was in the RAF during the war, and he was di- he was killed. So I went back looking, and it's a lot easier now the internet is there. I'm on Ancestry and everything. And it's been wonderful finding amazing links like I have one branch of the family that went off to Pennsylvania um, in the the mining because they were coal miners so they went off to the Pennsylvania mines and so I've got one branch of the family that went to the states and actually intermarried with German miners so I've got one branch of family went there some of your listeners does the name Lackawanna sound familiar yes 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 yes. I know do you know uh, I know that you come to the states they have a fantastic um visitor center oh okay that you actually go down in the mines oh wow okay in a trolley okay and it's not for everyone no i've been down down mines here oh yeah yeah but they have a wonderful i think it's actually a national park now okay but if that's where your people, some of your people have gone, it might be fascinating for you to, to go there and visit the uh, the actual, you know, mine. Well, the other thing that's weird is my family are very traditionally Welsh chapel, um, very much traditional kind of Welsh chapel. My mother was a Sunday school teacher, so was my grandmother. Um, but one branch of the family are very, became very famous in Mormonism and a, a kind of second cousin of mine in the 1840s um, 
became one of the Welsh Mormons that helped set up Salt Lake City and was one of the Welsh Mormon pilgrims. So a man called John Butler Mormon. So we've got a branch of the family who actually, and, it, and funny enough, my, my dad's cousin is, has become a Mormon and didn't actually know that her distant relative was one of the pioneer Mormons. And for any of your listeners who are in Church of Latter-day Saints, um, they'll know about the Welsh Mormon pioneers. And some relatives of mine actually went over on the Hartley, which was one of the boats that went over. Um, and eventually led to the founding of Salt Lake City. So that's another branch of the family. Now, my husband's side's even funnier because he's related to both Scottish royalty and also to the judges in the Salem witch trials. Oh, my which goodness. Was, oh, my goodness. When I found his side and I discovered he was related to the one of the, I mean, as a good feminist, <laughs> you know, as a good feminist, I was oh. like, you weren't related to the women, were you? No, you're related to one of the judges. Oh, yeah. Wow. So have you go- been to Salem, Massachusetts? No, I haven't. I've been to Boston, but I've never been to Salem. Your daughter would love that. Absolutely. But of course, as a good feminist, you know, with mm-hmm. my kind of, you know, which, he, no, my husband's related to actually the judges, not, not Right, the I understand. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. So, you know, Helen, I've done that to calm myself down. Anyway, sorry. I don't I'm- want to take any more of your time because I know how many hundreds of things you are involved in. And um, but what I hope that we can say hello in Toronto in Absolutely. August. I'll see you in August. Thank you. All so right. Take much. care. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. I love to hear from my listeners. So send me an email at NicoleChristina.com and tell me what you'd like to hear more about. I would also greatly appreciate if you could hop on iTunes and rate the show. Ratings help other people find the podcast so I can share all these good juicy interviews with others. I would also invite you to become a patron of the Zestful Aging podcast. Hop on over to patreon.com forward slash zestful aging and consider making a small donation you will be eligible for insider only goodies and behind the scenes information and it'll help you feel good knowing that you're contributing to the zestful aging podcast i'll look forward to sharing more juicy interviews next week on zestful aging